We invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, the passage will be on the screen in in just a second. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, reiterate that uh, Clarence was talking about man-to-man, but there are a lot of other care ministries, and we invite you to to stop by that back table and look not only for uh, how we may be able to help you, but also there may be an area which you would like to get involved to, to serve and help others. So uh, take, a, take a look at that, uh, that table. i got a question for you as we, uh, we bark on uh, Genesis uh, 4 this morning as we continue our, our series in the book of Genesis. Uh, are you very teachable? Do you have a teachable spirit? Uh, are you a coachable person? Might be another way to, uh, to say that. Uh, do you have a heart that's quick to repent when somebody points out uh, maybe a flaw in your character or uh, a sin in your life that maybe up to this point has gone overlooked uh, by you? Uh, do you find yourself to be defensive when somebody else uh, confronts you on something or maybe uh, stubbornly refusing to acknowledge that perhaps you've, you've made a mistake or you've thought about something the wrong way? I kind of pride myself in being a teachable person. I kind of feel like I, you know, if somebody takes the time to come to me and, and share a concern or a thought or somebody that they might happen to, uh, to see in my life, I, I kind of think I'm the kind of guy that will listen uh, and take it to heart, uh, and to uh, to see the truth there, and maybe to make some changes in my life. A uh, good example of this was yesterday. Uh, I met up with uh, Cindy and Katie, and, and a little bit later on at uh, lunch at uh, Einstein's in downtown Kirkwood uh, with a family, and we were just grabbing a bite to eat, and as we were walking uh, over to uh, to the restaurant, Katie said, you know, Dad, I think maybe you're smoking too many cigars. Now, I, I tend to have a cigar every once in a while, as I would as I would frame it, uh, and uh, she said, you know, I think it feels like you've just been, been having a few too many cigars lately, and you might want to think about that. And having the teachable spirit I have and being the coachable person that I am, I don't know why some of you are laughing right now, I, uh, I began, I proceeded to explain to her why she was wrong <laughs> and how she completely misunderstood and that, I, I, you know, I, I might have a, a couple one week, but then I'd go maybe three or four weeks without having any, and they offset each other. And so I was very defensive in my position. And Cindy kind of chimed in and said, you know, Tom, I think maybe you, you smoke more cigars than you realize, kind of like you probably play more golf than you realize. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> now you're meddling in my life. <laughs> Hold on just a second. You know, and, and in a very kind and gentle way, they were trying to point out a couple of idols in my life. I mean, that's the truth. You know, I might not want to say it that way, but that's the, that's the truth. Do you have a teachable spirit? Are you, are you a coachable person? We're going to see uh, a passage this morning, Genesis chapter 4. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at the story of Cain and Abel for the next two Sundays. And we're going to see a person uh, that didn't have a teachable spirit, somewhat similar to what I had yesterday wasn't coachable, wasn't willing to repent, uh, and the results are, are deadly. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, hear the word of God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
This is the perfect reading of God's holy word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, uh, your word is perfect. Our word is not. Uh, Your word is holy. My word is not. Father, your word carries with it the power of life. And my word does not. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't come here this morning to hear the word of man. I pray that you would protect this congregation from my words and that you would replace them with your message. Father, each one of us, truth be known, probably has a tendency to be somewhat defensive, uh, to rather look at someone else's sin than my own. And Father, perhaps we don't realize what a dangerous spiritual position that places us in. And so I ask this morning that you would come and that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would maybe for a few moments let down the defenses, turn our back on the stubbornness, and allow your spirit to speak truth into our life. Because, Father, you never speak truth because you want to hurt us or harm us or condemn us. You speak truth because you come to bring salvation and grace and mercy. Father, help us not to miss that. Forgive me for my sin. Don't let it stand in the way of what you want us to know. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, everybody knows the story of Cain and Abel, right? Uh, It's one of the most famous stories in the world. Whether you've actually ever picked up a Bible or not, there's a good chance that you have heard this story in some form or fashion. Uh, But typically the story results uh, ends up talking about something about murder and about the, the hatred between brothers. And I, quite frankly, don't think that's what this story is about at all. I think that's actually an end result of what God really wants us to see. And so I've divided this sermon into two parts, and we're not going to actually get to the, to the attack on Cain, on his brother Abel, until next Sunday, because I think, quite frankly, we have bigger fish to fry, and I want to look at those this morning. In order to understand this, we have to get the context of the story. We have to, to get the setting of the story, so to speak. And I think it's found primarily... Uh, in verses two and three of cha- two, three and four of chapter four, Moses writes this. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of his of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now I've underlined in this. If we could stay with that that page, I've underlined in this uh, on this uh, uh, screen. In the course of time, because I believe therein lies kind of the key to unlocking the entire passage. Because if you've ever read this story, one of your questions naturally is, why is God so put out with Cain? What did Cain do that was wrong? And how do we know that what Cain did was wrong? And some commentators have argued, well, the fact that, that Abel sacrificed an animal, that there was a blood sacrifice, that's what made it pleasing to God. But see, Cain only brought the fruit of his labor, and that wasn't pleasing to God because a sacrifice has to entail uh, a blood offering. But that ignores the passages in the Pentateuch and the law where God commands the farmers to bring their first fruit of their crop. And so it can't just be that there's a blood offering. What is going on here that made Cain's sacrifice unworthy? And it's found in that phrase, in the course of time, which in the Hebrew is another way of saying at the appropriate time. Or or when they were supposed to bring their offering, they came before the Lord. It wasn't that Cain uh, brought the wrong offering at the wrong time. Cain, Cain, Cain came at the right time with his offering, as did Abel. The difference was in the heart. And Genesis doesn't give us the specific background of how Cain and Abel knew 
the appropriate attitude and action or instructions for worship through sacrifice. But it's obvious that they have been given. Cain and Abel knew when and they knew how and they knew with what attitude to bring their worship to God because they had been instructed in those ways. Now, the, the Genesis doesn't say that explicitly, but implicitly in that phrase, we understand that they knew the right time, they knew the right method, they knew the appropriate attitude with which they were to come. So there was not confusion. Perhaps their father, Adam, uh, as he sacrificed to God, of the first fruits of the ground and of, and of the animals of his flock, he taught them as he sacrificed. Perhaps God himself spoke to Cain and Abel and explained it to them, but they knew there was no confusion. They weren't in the dark about what they were to do and how they were to approach it. Uh, this last year, we got an invitation from some friends to attend a wedding, and I'm reading through the invitation. I'm looking at the date and the time, and I see this little phrase in the invitation that says, black tie invited. Now, I've gotten invitations before, but black tie, but typically it would say uh, black tie optional, or it would say black tie required. I'd never seen black tie invited, so I give it to Cindy. I said, Cindy, what do you think this means, black tie invited? I'm confused, and I don't want to get it wrong. Well, I'm not sure what it means. I don't know, so I called a wedding coordinator friend of mine. I do lots of weddings and know some wedding coordinators, so I called her, and I said, hey, I've got this invitation. It says black tie invited. Uh, what does that mean? She said, I don't know. I don't think I've ever read that before. So uh, I just performed a wedding of some folks at Green Tree, and so I called the wife of the, uh, of the mother of the bride, and I said, hey, I, I've got this thing, black tie invited, and, and I know you kind of went through all that. Do you know what it means? She said, I don't have any clue what it means. So finally, after all this searching around, I called the person who wrote the invitation. <laughs> Brilliant stroke of genius. And I said to my friend, what does this mean? Now, in the, in the first service, I went on with, I made my example that there's no confusion. I walked on. 20 people came up to me afterwards and said, what does black tie invited mean? So you guys are going to get to know. It simply means black tie is optional. They didn't like the word optional and put invited in instead. So much ado about nothing for me. But point was, I was confused. I didn't know what to do. So I went to the source to find out. Cain and Abel had already been to the source. There's no confusion here. Cain cannot, nor can Abel for that matter, plead ignorance that they don't know how to worship God, which leads us to the more important point that this is a matter of the heart. And I want to look at both Cain and Abel's hearts this morning for a few moments. I'm going to make two observations about Cain's and one about Abel's. The first about Cain is this. Cain came to worship with a presumptive heart. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why no regard? Well, again, we have to look behind the attitude that's working out in an action. In other words, we have to use a little bit of discernment to understand what's happening here. And you know, if you're a parent, you do this all the time, right? If you have little ones uh, and you're parenting them and, and they're kind of defiant and they're putting, you've got a three-year-old, they're putting their hands on their hips and they're, they're not going to you know, do what you ask them to do and they're being uh, really angry and, and, and frustrating you and causing you angst uh, and they're being disrespectful, you're, you're going to take care of that, right? You're going you're gonna to discipline them. You're going to correct them. But you have to take the context, right? You have to understand what's behind the emotion. It's one thing if, if there's no real good reason for it. They're just, they're just being stubborn. But if it's 25 minutes past their nap time and they didn't have a very good lunch and they had a lot of sugar that morning, you kind of take that all into context. You go, well, maybe I'm going to handle this one a little bit differently. And that's what we need to do. We need to look at this and say, what exactly is going on? And what's going on is that in some way or fashion, Cain ignored God's instruction. 
God said, Cain, here's how you worship me. And Cain said, I'm not going to do it that way, God. I'm going to do it my own way. And I'm going to demand that you accept my worship on my terms because I'm not going to worship you according to your terms. Now, you can call this pride. You can call this arrogance. But the bottom line was Cain was going to do it his way. And the instruction that he had received had not sunk into his heart to make him a worshiper. So he comes, whether he thinks it's a religious duty that he has to go through and he just wants to get it over with, for whatever reason, Cain is not bowing the knee before God and worshiping him in his heart. He's coming with a presumption that he doesn't really need to be here. Let's just get this over with. Let me give you a couple other examples out of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 21, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? God says pride and arrogance are abomination. They're evil. They're the exact opposite of worship. Worship in its purest form simply means to bow down, to bend the knee. And Cain is not going to do that in his heart. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 3 when he writes the following. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. But notice that John isn't stopping just with the murder. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. John was able to look past uh, the actions and see that there was something evil in Cain's heart and that evil was a presumptiveness. It was an arrogance. It was a God, I'm going to worship you, but not really. I'm going to do it my way. Contrast that with Abel's heart. Abel's heart, his sacrifice is accepted. Why? Because he came to God with a proper attitude, with an attitude of faith. Look at what the author of Hebrews says about Abel in chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith. In other words, Abel said, I believe what my father Adam has taught me. I believe what what I've learned as I've sat at his feet and I've heard him talk about the glory of creation and I've heard him speak about the the picturesque Garden of Eden and I've heard him explain to me the the story of naming all the animals and getting through that whole process and still feeling kind of empty inside and he went and took a nap and when he woke up from a nap there was mom standing right in front of him and she was beautiful and he burst out into song at this gift that God had given him. I've heard the stories of him walking and with God in the garden and talking about the glory and the majesty of creation and being in fellowship with God. And I remember the story about the day of ruin when that disastrous choice to rebel changed everything. My father's explained to me now why the ground is so hostile to us, why it's so hard for us to earn a living. My mother has explained to me why pain has entered into both marriage and childbirth and childrearing. But they've also taught me about the promise that God gave them on that day, that he didn't leave them hopeless, that he said one of mom's own sons was going to destroy the works of Satan and that we have hope and we can put our faith in God and we can worship him accordingly because he hasn't abandoned us, because he hasn't left us. He's loved us perfectly and able to believe that message. And because he believed, because he had faith, He worshiped God accordingly. And God said, there's the righteous one. Abel's heart was a humble, worshiping heart. But now back to Cain's. Not only was he presumptive 
and worship, but he was also sullen in judgment. Look at verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. That's another way of saying you could, you could see his anger on his face. You know, you're walking, maybe you're at your house and you're seeing somebody walking down the hall towards you or you're at school and somebody's passing you in the hall, you're at your office and somebody's got what we would call a scowl on their face. Or you can just tell, you know, they're muttering under their breath. You don't, you don't even have to hear what they say. You know by their countenance that something's very, very wrong. And Cain's anger showed on his face. It doesn't say that Cain's disappointment with himself showed on his face. It doesn't say that, that Cain was kicking himself because he knew better and he just really messed it up. It simply says that he was enraged at God for not accepting him on his term. No inward reflection, no repentance, not even a pause to ask himself, maybe my reaction here is off base, only bitter resentment and self-pity. I have learned over the years as people come and go from my office, as couples come and go from my office who want to talk about marriage, I can tell in about the first 10 minutes what kind of... uh, what kind of journey we're going to be on, whether this marriage has a great chance for survival or whether it's perhaps doomed to failure. And it's not because I'm a real smart guy. It's not because I've found some brilliant insight in counseling that I don't want to share with the rest of the world. It's simply through observation. And it kind of comes down to this. Typically what will happen is that uh, we'll sit down and somebody will start, and, and most often it may be the wife, and, and she may share some of the things with which they're struggling and the challenges they have and the issues that are before them and, 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 and you know, say, here's kind of how I feel when my husband does this or my husband does that. And where the, where the point comes, where, the, where the, the light comes on, is not in that information, but it's in the husband's response. Because you're going to get one of two responses, my experience tells me. The first response is the husband's going to say, well, yeah, that might be true, but what about her? And if that's the response, and if that's the emotion of the heart, we have a hill that we might not be able to climb. But if his response is, you know what, everything she says is right, and quite frankly, Tom, she's being polite. <laughs> she's not telling you everything. I got a lot of junk in my life. Yeah, she may have some stuff too, but you know what, what she said is exactly right. And I, I got to get on my face before God and get this figured out because I don't want to destroy my marriage. Those are the ones where I go, okay, now, now, we, got, now we got something to work with. Because you can work with brokenness. You can work with repentance. You may have a long journey to go. It may be an incredible struggle. But with that attitude, you can move forward. Why? Because there's a sense of understanding that I have to repent. And that the judgment is actually meant to bring me life and not death. And Cain missed that completely. Cain's saying, what about him? (laughs) Why are you looking at me? And he's sullen because God has found his attitude inappropriate in worship. But it doesn't stop there. The story doesn't stop there. This first half of the story actually comes to its culmination with God's care for Cain. Because God sees that Cain is in great spiritual peril. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord doesn't turn his back on Cain. He doesn't say, well, if you're not going to listen to me, then fine, go your own way. The Lord interacts with Cain. And he says, and why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. God understood the powerful forces at play in Cain's heart and mind. And he graciously warns him. He compassionately redirects Cain's thought and says, Cain, you're going about this the wrong way. I know you know better because you've been taught. I know you understand the kind of relationship that you and I can have. But you've got to get that right. 
Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Sin, which I'm going to define as rejecting God's law and rejecting God's love. Because God said to him, here's how I want you to worship, but I want you to worship that way because I love you and it's what's best for you. And Cain said, no, I'm going to go another way. And God said, Cain, son, stop. Sin is right there crouching at the door. It's lurking in the shadows and it's ready to pounce. And if you're not careful, it will destroy you. One of the things I like to do kind of as a hobby around my house sometimes is, is kind of stand in a little nook and cranny when somebody doesn't know you're standing there and then they walk by and, and you pounce. <laughs> and, and, you, and, you know, especially like when the kids are coming, I'm late at night and the kids have to walk through the laundry room to, to, to get into the main part of our house. And there's a little place you can stand right there and they come right up the steps and they're right there and they don't know you're there. And you don't have to yell or scream. You just go, hi. And then you watch them jump up in the air and they kind of like run, but they don't go anywhere. It's really a fun experience. But, but, but your intent is evil. Your intent is to, you know, to cause emotional harm to your child. All right. And they get me back sometimes, and they play that game with me as well. And I run in place. And when my feet are on the ground, I run in place. But that's the story for another day. Um, but there's, there's a malicious intent there. It's kind of sprinkled with fun. But here, there's no fun at all. And he says, you know, there's somebody knocking on your door, Cain. Do you know who it is? Do you understand the danger that you are facing? And its desire is for you. The same word that God uses with Eve when he says, you're going to desire to control your husband, and that's going to be a problem in your marriage says the same thing to Cain here. Its desire is to control you. Its desire is to master you, to dominate you, to bend you to its will. If you want to get a good picture of this, just kind of in modern day uh, arts, go watch the, the uh, trilogy, the, the Lord of the Rings, or read the books, and watch how Tolkien describes the ring's power to take you and to bind you and to bring you into the darkness. It's a beautiful ring. It's a glorious ring. And everybody who sees it wants to have it for their own. The the character that's been most deformed by the ring, that's been most destroyed by the ring, calls it his precious. And God is saying, son, you need to see. This is an evil desire that wants to consume you. And he offers a compassionate warning. You must master it. Is that possible? Is it possible for Cain to master sin? More importantly, is it possible for you to master sin? Is it possible for me to master sin? I think a lot of times we say, you know, I'm struggling with sin and I just don't ever seem to make any progress while others are talking about victory over sin. Is it possible for us to master sin as disciple of Jesus? I believe scripture says it is and I'm gonna give you three quick points on this and we'll wrap up. If you're going to master sin, if I'm going to master sin, let me give you just a a little, maybe a little... uh, a worksheet to help you. The first is this. You have to see it for what it is. You have to see it for what it is. And by that, I mean two things. The first is that it's enticing, that it's appealing. I've never had anybody come to me and say, you know, I just hate sinning, but I keep on doing it. It's such a pain to sin. <laughs> People say, I don't, it, it, it gets a hold of me, holds on to me. It, it makes me want it and feel like it'll help me. And then it destroys me. That's exactly right. Sin is enticing and appealing, but it's deadly. Look at what James says in James chapter one. James says this. Then desire, that same word that that Moses uses in uh, Genesis, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth joy and freedom and emancipation and delight. No, sin brings death. I came around the corner the other day at the office and walked into the lunchroom, and this is what was in front of me. 
I didn't, I, I, we didn't rearrange this stuff on the table to take this picture. That's what it was. And there's these brownies that were phenomenal, cookies, uh, the powdered donuts, which my children think chocolate donuts are the greatest donuts in the world, but powdered donuts are actually the greatest invention of all time. And then after you got done with the sweet tooth, you got a little salt to wash it down. And, and I had to, uh, I stopped and I saw that, and, you know, and I start salivating, and, and, you know, my eyes start getting real big, and I start going to that dark, dark place. And, uh, and you got to recognize this for what it is. It's sweet, and it's salty, and it's appealing, and it'll kill you, <laughs> right? That's what happens with sin. Looks great. No big deal to fool around sexually before marriage. It's a lot of fun, right? It'll kill your marriage. Trust me. It's okay to cheat on this test. You know, I just get some answers. It'll help my grade point average. You don't want to walk around with that guilt the rest of your life. Trust me. You know what? I just got to get the last word in this argument because I just got to prove my point so this person knows I'm right. Build a marriage on that kind of attitude. It'll kill you. Looks great at the moment. Feels wonderful. But it's deadly. And if we're going to master sin, if we're going to rule over sin, we have to see it for what it is. The second thing we have to do is give it no room in our heart. We can't, we can't believe the sweet part of it, so to speak. We have to reject that. And we have to stubbornly and strategically refuse it. If you have a sin with which you're wrestling on a constant basis, talk to a brother or sister in Christ about that and begin to pick that apart and figure out why it's such a temptation and help somebody else strategize with you. Come and talk to me. I, I'm working on strategies for sin in my life all the time. I won't judge you. I'll, I'll try and figure it out with you. Call on our cares ministry, folks, one of the other pastors, but strategically figure out how you're going to not put yourself right smack dab in the middle of that sweet temptation. Give it no room in your heart. Stubbornly, stubbornly and strategically refuse it. And the third part is this. You've got to turn away. I had to walk out of the kitchen. I was moving towards the table, and I had to move away. I had to turn my back and go the other direction. Don't linger, but replace that desire of evil, replace that temptation with faith. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're not by yourself. This is not something new. This has happened before and it will happen again. It's not unique to your setting. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Turn your back and go the other way that you may endure it. Turning away and not lingering is part of it, but replacing it with faith is the other important part of the equation. Why do we come here on Sunday mornings? Why do we sing songs of praise that hopefully kind of resonate in your head and you go throughout the rest of your week and you're driving down the highway or in the shower or you're cutting the grass or wherever and you're kind of thinking those same, same songs and, and, and you're kind of singing them and humming them along? Why do we read scripture? Why do we take time for prayer? Why do we say the prayer team is, is down front every Sunday after the service to pray for you if you need prayer? Why do we confess our sins in corporate confession? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? So that we can say we did our religious duty, so we can say we, we dotted the I's and crossed the T's, and now we can go on and live our life the rest of the week any way we want to? No. We're planting seeds of faith that will grow throughout the week, and one of the, one of the fruits of that growth will be the resistance the temptation, and the mastery of sin, that we will actually be able to follow Jesus faithfully. I had a guy in one of my Bible studies a couple weeks ago say, do you think we can ever go a whole day without sinning? I said, well, uh, yeah, I think I could, I could probably do that, but 
I got to close the door and, you know, and take lots of naps all day. And, you know, you can't do that. You got to go through your day facing the temptations. But we are armed, Scripture says, with seeing sin for what it is, not giving any room for it in our heart and turning and replacing it with faith in order that it might grow in our lives. I think God gave us this passage in, in chapter 4 for a couple of reasons. The first is, is a warning to show us our proclivity towards sin. I'm no different than Cain, friends. I, I can easily come with my own attitude. I can easily say, I'm not bowing the knee before God. I'll, I'll do it right on the outside, but on the inside, my heart can be just as stubborn as anybody else's, and I need to be reminded of my own proclivity to allow sin to take root in my life and my tendency to defend my attitude and my actions pridefully instead of repentance. But I think more importantly, and something that, that I haven't spent a whole lot of time on but I think is crucial, is that it shows us a gracious God. If Cain did that to me, I would have probably said, fine, Cain, do it your own way, suffer the consequences, see you later. God doesn't do that. He says, child, son, don't you see what you're about to step in? Don't you understand the mistake that you're about to make? It's going to devastate you. There's a way out, Cain. It's the way of faith. And we see a compassionate and a gracious heart. And Cain couldn't hear that message. But more importantly, God couldn't have delivered that message to Cain of grace and mercy and forgiveness without knowing that the shadow of the cross was on the horizon of history. And God saying to Cain, you can avoid this. You can overcome this was said at the cost of his son's life. Because it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we ultimately experience forgiveness and healing and mercy. He is a compassionate God. He's a merciful God. Is he your God? Let's pray.